Greetings. Welcome to another episode of Get Right for Sunday. We will be looking at the readings for the second Sunday in Lent. I am Pastor Wright. And I'm Vicar Pearson. I've got the gospel text for us this week, and it comes to us from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This familiar reading begins with, the setup, the statement that Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews and a man of the Pharisees, he came to Jesus by night. And that little package of information is something that we've extrapolated on and built this idea of who Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and he comes at night. Why does John say that he comes at night. And what is John trying to convey by saying that Nicodemus comes at night? The standard line on this is that Nicodemus comes at night because he's afraid or because he's ashamed or because he's going to be outed by the other Pharisees for going and talking to Jesus. But John doesn't tell us that that's why he comes. And I looked at the grammar of exactly how John is describing this action. So, to give you a brief Greek lesson, Greek has four cases that it operates in, and these are the four different ways that night can be expressed, or time can be expressed. So, the first case, the nominative case, doesn't really show up for explanations of time. Um, there's so few instances, there's not really a standard procedure for handling those. Uh, second is a genitive, which is what we have here, and it's just during or within. So the ESV translates this, he came to Jesus by night and said to him. So during the night, within 
the time span between sunset and sunrise. We could get more specific and use the dative, which would signify a point in time, a direct answer to the question, when. So this would be to say Nicodemus came to him at you know, 2 a.m. or at 7 p.m., because both of those are within the night in the way that we count time in uh, New Testament time. And then finally, the accusative, which would be duration or extent. So he came to him throughout the night or stayed with him all night. So what we have is simply he just came to him sometime during the night. And this could be any time between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. the following day. And so there's not really much meat on the bone here to really understand why Nicodemus came at night. But he comes inquisitive. And he comes asking these questions. He, he certainly sees that Jesus has power and authority in his teaching. And he confesses that Jesus has come from God. And so we have to think that Nicodemus is coming to be taught himself, even though Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. And anytime you hear light and dark, night and day imagery in John, either in his gospel, in his epistles, or in his revelation, you have to pay close attention because John uses night and day, light and dark, very deliberately to show where God is and where God is not, where God's word is preached and where God's word is suppressed, where God's truth shines forth and where the work of the devil or of our human nature clouds our vision of God's truth. For Nicodemus to come to him at night signifies that Nicodemus is lacking in some knowledge or lacking some revelation, and that's answered specifically in what Jesus says to him Unless one is born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the Jesus who is the light that has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is what John has said in the first chapter. And in the second chapter, the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus at his baptism, John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus is revealing himself to be to Nicodemus. He is the light that shines forth even in the darkness. The epistle is from Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law 
who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. St. Paul brings out these grand statements, and the first one comes to us from verse 3. Abraham believed God. Now this sounds simple and straightforward, but when we unpack this, this is the absolute belief. This isn't a general thing. This isn't an acknowledgement. This isn't, oh, there is a God. Abraham believed in the God of Israel, the God of creation, the God of Almighty. This isn't just a whim. And because this belief, this faith was absolute, we hear it was counted to him as righteousness. God saw where Abraham was placing his trust. And it wasn't in his works. It wasn't in, I'm going to believe and then this is going to happen because I'm so good. It was the complete and utter trust that God will be God in Abraham's life. In fact, as St. Paul goes, if we are to see Abraham in his faith connected to his works, then he has something to boast about. I have faith. Look what I have done to appease and please God. These are the things that men look for. These are the things that we seek to do so that we get the praise of those around us to show us how great our faith is. But we cannot stand before God with these statements. And St. Paul continues to go on in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Grace is simply being given something that we do not deserve. We do not deserve the resurrection. We do not deserve the forgiveness of sins. We do not deserve the love of God found in Christ our Lord. We can say and look at the works of our hands and say, look how good it is. In fact, the world might even say, look how good you are doing. But when we measure that up to the perfection that God demands, what are we left holding? Nothing but corruption and death. And this goes back to the simple thing that King David says. Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven. This is the hope that our Lord grants to us. It is the hope against hope. For why should we be forgiven? Why should our lawless deeds be forgiven? Well, out of love, out of compassion, and out of pity, our Lord sends Christ Jesus to take care and deal with our lawless deeds so that they are covered with his righteousness, with his perfection. This is why we can stand before God, knowing that our sins are not counted against us. We get to stand with Abraham in his faith, 
knowing that salvation is ours through the gift that God continues to provide. So, looking at these two readings together, it's interesting to find the common thread that ties this gospel lesson back to this epistle lesson, because the Old Testament lesson is the call of Abraham, and so then we hear the epistle that talks about, okay, what exactly is going on in the call of Abraham, that it is faith that justifies and not works. And then we have John 3, 1 through 17, and where's the connection? And you can find it, again, I'm looking at the grammar, and when you look at the people that Jesus is talking about, those born of the Spirit, those who have been washed by the water and the Spirit, those who have received the revelation of God, those who have received his teaching, the world whom God loves so much that he would send his only son to die for them, the world, the people, we are always the receivers. We're always the passive agents in this equation. We are always receiving from God. We are having God work upon us and work in us. We are not coming to God to strike a deal. We're not coming to God to say, send us your son. We're not coming to God for all of these things and demanding it. But God is finding us in the midst of our death, in the midst of our darkness, and giving us life where there was death. And I really love what St. Paul says, the God who calls into being the things that were not. Creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. He finds us in our nothing and creates us to be something. And we are only something by being his. St. Augustine says, God makes the ungodly man godly in order that he might preserve in this godliness and righteousness. For a man is justified in order that he might be just, not so that he might think it is all right to go on sinning. And as you mentioned, the whole idea that God calls out of nothing all that exists, that includes us, but where does this faith come from? Do I own this faith? Do I create this faith? Do I even keep this faith? No, it is a gift from God. He is the one who not only creates it, but he is the one who sustains it. Can I actively work against that? Absolutely. Can I do anything to earn it? No. And with that, it is the great and wondrous awe that God continues to call me into existence. He provides for me. He sustains me. And even though the wages of my sin is death, life is still given and seen. I get to have the light of Jesus, as you were speaking about, which scatters the darkness of my sin, of my death. And I get to live that out, knowing that God has made me, an ungodly man, godly, only in him. It is my hope and prayer that this little discussion helps you get right for Sunday. 
You can join us on Saturday at 6 o'clock and Sunday, both at 8 o'clock and 10.30. God's peace.